the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Lee Johnson. This week, we are talking about trust. But before we do that, let's get our drink orders and our rants and raves in. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Today, I'll have a stout. Whatever you have on tap is fine with me. This week, I am raving about Swedish fish. I don't eat a lot of candy, and usually when I do, I tend more toward the chocolate. But recently, I had the occasion to try again some Swedish fish, and they are really lovely and delightful. (laughs) And I found out that I can buy on Amazon a box that's made for a store that, like, when you open it, it's also a display, and it has individual packs of, you know, (laughs) single-size servings of Swedish fish. I'm just having a great time, me and my Swedish fish. You didn't take that as a warning that you're buying bulk sort of stock. (laughs) That would seem like a sign to me. I feel like we're going to go over to Rick's house now and he's going to have like end caps on the ends of his bookshelves with like Swedish fish displays. Swedish fish call us. (laughs) So Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I think I'm just going to have a winter lager today and I am raving about the taxonomy of procrastination. So I was recently talking to one of my friends who's in psychology, and she was telling me that apparently there is this whole taxonomy of procrastination, that like all flavors of procrastination are not the same. And some people say there's four types, some people say there's six types, and you could probably guess what those types are like. There's the perfectionist, the worrier, the crisis maker, the dreamer, you know, all reasons to put off something that you're wanting to do or needing to do. But I was telling her that I had this experience just the other day where I found myself sitting in my office thinking, I really wish I could just get someone to finish this one project for me. And then I thought, but if somebody did it for me, I probably wouldn't really feel relieved of a burden so much as I would immediately wonder whether or not I could just ask that person to do one more thing for me. And then I thought, well, if somebody did everything for me, what good would I be to the world, right? Like, what would I be contributing or accomplishing? Would I even still be myself? So anyway, I want to add to the taxonomy of procrastination this new form of procrastination, which I call righteous procrastination. And I would like to hear from our listeners if they also go through this. Jason, what about you? What are you having and are you ranting or raving? So my drink order and my rant are connected. So first my drink order. I'm going to have a whiskey sour because I went through a whiskey sour phase once and I went through it long enough when I was in grad school that I walked into the bar and the bartender had already poured me one. Mm. <laughs> and because of that, I kept drinking them much longer than I would have wanted to because you can't say no to that kind of, you know, that kind of <laughs> yeah. everybody knows your name sort of moment. <laughs> you want to go. So that's my drink order. And my rant is about Binghamton, New York. <laughs> I recently went back. I was invited by the grad students to give a keynote at their conference. And this is not about them or their conference. All was fine. And it's not really exactly about the town. It was about the idea that I would want to go back and see the town again. 
Mm-hmm. I walked around and visited some of the old places I lived and where friends lived. All my friends are gone. And it felt like dying. It felt like being dead. <laughs> like just seeing these places and realizing that, that my memories mean nothing, that things have gone on, that things have changed. I was like, this is what it must feel like to be a ghost. Oh, Merry Christmas, Binghamton. <laughs> exactly. Except for there, I mean, that's the ultimate ego boost. Like, I mean, the whole town, Pottersville becomes a totally different town. Like, <laughs> for me, it was just like, wow, the absolute indifference of the universe to my existence is a little... <laughs> hard to take sometimes. This is the saddest rant I've ever heard. <laughs> we'll have to open a new segment, Sad Rants. Uh, no. Anyway, so onward to brighter things. <laughs> trust. Rick, we're talking about trust. What do you want to talk about? I trust that you'll keep this just between us. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> he says on a podcast. Right. <laughs> um, but what am I saying here when I say I trust you'll keep this between us? I'm certainly not saying that I know you'll keep it a secret, but it seems like I'm also not saying I believe you'll keep it a secret or even I hope you'll keep it a secret. So what am I saying and what am I doing when I say that I trust someone or trust something? I'm not asking you to keep a secret and I'm not telling you to keep a secret. So what the hell is going on? Now, trust seems to come up in very mundane ways. For example, when I'm driving down the street, I trust the other drivers to stay in their own lanes, to (laughs) obey the traffic laws, and to be alert. And if I didn't trust this, defensive driving would take on a whole new meaning, and all driving would be anxiety-ridden and a little bit like Hunger Games. (laughs) So what am I doing when I trust the other drivers? And more grandly, trust seems to have a political role in that we put trust in our elected officials. And also our living together and living well together seems to rely on something like trust. Not even to mention that our money insists in God we trust. (laughs) So I trust you will listen because trust us, we're going to dive into trust. (laughs) Nice. When I started thinking about trust, it occurred to me that a distinction that the philosopher J.L. Austin makes between what goes on in language, we have a content, which he called the locutionary part of language, but then language does something, and he calls that the illocutionary aspect of language. Trust is obviously not only saying something. When I say, I trust you'll keep a secret, I'm not just stating a fact, but it seems like also I'm doing something or I'm hoping to do something. I'm hoping to bring about some state of affairs. And so I wanted to ask you all, am I right to bring up this illocutionary force? And if so, what is it exactly we're doing when we're trusting? I think this is a really difficult question to answer, partly because I'm not sure that when I say I trust you, Mm -hmm. that the stating of it is doing something. So it's not like, for example, I now pronounce you man and wife. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I can say I trust you and not trust you. The stating of it doesn't necessitate that what I'm stating is actually the case. The locution doesn't necessitate the illocution. But if I say out loud, I trust you'll keep the secret, 
am I not hoping something will result from my saying that to you so that it does have a certain kind of illocutionary power? I want you to know I'm placing my trust in you, and therefore I think I'm trying to affect your actions. Hmm. There's a certain sense in which, in those situations, I feel like the invocation of the word trust is trying to draw attention usually to a trust that maybe is already assumed, mm. right? Like you're speaking to a friend, you assume that friend is going to keep everything you say to them in some kind of confidence, right? Not turn it into immediate gossip. Then when you say, I trust you keep this between us, you are kind of trying to not so much do something with the saying, but underscore or make explicit, maybe an implicit relation that already is supposed to exist. I mean, there are these statements and invocations of trust, but there's also the way in which trust is often unstated. And later when someone does something, you say, I trusted you, or you really betrayed my trust. And the fact that you never had to utter it, it's only uttered in its sort of betrayal or its broken nature. There is this Andy Kaufman bit when he was on the old TV show called Midnight Special, which was hosted by Wolfman Jack. And he comes out with a band and here's what he sings. I trusted you, 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 I trusted you. I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you. I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you. I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you. I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you. I trusted you, I trusted you. There's kind of a story there, right? I trusted you. And the audience is like, but then what happened? <laughs> and I think that gets at what you're saying, Jason, is that there's an underscoring of an acknowledgement. Hoffman's song is saying, I'm acknowledging that we had this trust, and then, and he never states it. By the way, I should say they bring him out for an encore, and he does the song again. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> I want to push back on this a little bit, though, because I'm not sure when I say I trust you to keep this a secret that I think by stating it, either I am actually going to trust you or mm. you are actually going to be trustworthy. Now, that's interesting. That's a point I never thought of, Lee, because it seems like the moment I say I trust you'll keep this a secret, I already have deemed you trustworthy. Because, first of all, I wouldn't tell you the secret, and then I certainly wouldn't say, I trust you'll keep this a secret, if I didn't think you were trustworthy. No, but you wouldn't say, I trust you'll keep this a secret, if the person was trustworthy. Like, why would I have to tell you to keep it a secret <laughs> if that was already there? By saying, I trust that you'll keep this a secret, your trustworthiness is undetermined. Right. Yeah. So then this makes the statement of trust really a strange animal. It's not a statement of fact, I think. And as you say, Lee, and I'm now becoming more convinced, it's not really that it has illocutionary power or even the third one I left out is perlocutionary force. For listeners, why don't you? Oh, so illocutionary is the aspect of language that does something. And then perlocutionary is the effects that language has that sort of ripple through the world. And so... You know, Lee, you use the example of I now pronounce you man and wife. The illocution there would be you are now man and wife. And the perlocutionary force would be all of the things that then follow from that. You know, that you're going to be faithful. You're going to honor one another. You know, you're going to file your taxes jointly. <laughs> In God we trust. 
but back to my point, the statements that we make, I trust that you will blah, 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 are really odd birds because mm-hmm. it's not really the content we're after. It's not the elocution we're after, and it's not the perlocution we're after. And so then I go back to my original question. What are we doing when we say to one another, I trust you? I wonder if Martin Hagelin's notion of secular faith might be useful here. Mm. It's kind of opposed to the standard atheistic response, which is, you know, there's religious faith and it's uncertain. And then there's a stuff we know, science, blah, 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 about the real world. And Hagelin's point is almost the opposite of that. There are a lot of faith exists in our relations with others in the world. Like I have faith that other people will treat me in a particular way, that relationships like a friendship, a love relationship, they're all sustained by a certain kind of faith faith. And he also argues that we put faith in our projects, you know, that to do philosophy is to assert that philosophy is going to continue to be meaningful and worthwhile and there'll be interest in it. And I mean, I think that to some extent, trust is a kind of faith we put into a person, into that relationship. Mm-hmm. It's never entirely verified. Like we could never really know absolutely that someone's always going to regard our trust with the proper respect. And it's also never really going to be entirely maybe called into question because someone can betray our trust and we'll have an argument, we'll clarify things, we'll talk about why it's important, and we can trust them again. You know, call back to our buried hammer – no, hatchets. <laughs> Let's call back to our buried hatchets conversation of a while ago. Can't get that image of a yard of little hatchet handles sticking up out of my head. Oh, come visit my yard. <laughs> But, Jason, you bring up now another term, namely faith, in order to help understand trust. And when I introduced the topic, I talked about knowing something and believing something. And it seems to me that all of these terms, knowing, believing, having faith, these are all about knowledge. That's what philosophers would refer to as epistemic terms. But I'm wondering, is trust simply an epistemic issue? That is, is it a way of knowing things? It seems to me that it cannot be exhausted by simply knowing. I completely agree with you. And to just sort of throw another wrench in the machine here, I think we can draw some useful insights about trust from Kant as well. So Immanuel Kant very famously wrote this response text to critics of basically his second critique, but more specifically his groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. And the response text was titled On the Supposed Right to Lie, in which he famously makes the case that lying is always morally wrong. Now, of course, we might have good prudential reasons to lie in certain instances, but Kant's argument is, and I think deontology's argument is in general, that we wouldn't then subsequently go back and say we ought to lie, right? Right. So that's not to say that we never lie and we don't even lie for good prudential reasons, but that lying, morally speaking, is always going to be wrong because we can't universalize it. When I say to my students, why can't you universalize the maxim, I ought to lie? It's really obvious because if you did that, you know, then you never could quite literally trust anything, right? Like you always have to operate as if there was no real distinction or no meaningful distinction between truth and falsities. 
And so we'd be in a world where everybody's lying all the time. And every time I say that, my students will say, but we do live in a world where everyone's lying all the time. Mm. And I say, well, guess what? I got some good news for you. You don't. (laughs) The fact is, is that 95% of your day, people are not lying to you. I mean, when you ask somebody what time it is, you know, when I'm in the Kroger grocery store and I go through the checkout line and the checkout woman is wearing a name tag that says, I don't know, Marsha, and she tells me your groceries cost $152, I don't go back and add them all up myself. I don't look at her and say, Marsha, if that is even your name, <laughs> you know, we hold on while I check. We just operate on this presumption that everybody understands we ought to tell the truth, right? So going back to your example of the drive we can see a kind of similar thing where there's a certain, I mean, Kant would call it the moral law within, operative in our interactions with other people that presumes trust, whether it's warranted or not. And in some ways, trust then becomes a moral category that sets the limits for the possibility of any interactions whatsoever. Mm. What I like about that is it doesn't negate the fact that trust has an epistemic component. Yeah, It says that it's something like less than certainty. And so there's a kind of, we might say, epistemic shortcoming. That is, I don't know for sure that this will be the case. And then I think if I follow your argument and Kant's argument, morality extends into the realm where our knowledge kind of falls short. And we say, look, this now is a moral issue that I have to treat you and act as if what you are saying is true. Yeah. And by the way, Kant says that what you just described is true of any kind of wish or hope or faith. There's a footnote. Unfortunately, I don't have the reference right now, but I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But there's a footnote in the third critique where he basically says this, that when we wish things or hope things or I mean, I would add trust in things that effectively that's just how reason works. It's always trying to go beyond its own limits, you know, go beyond the limits of what can be known. The reason why I brought up the driving example was because I kept thinking about what life would be like if I had to be constantly on guard that the oncoming traffic was going to just swerve into my lane. You know, no one was obeying the rules and so on. Not only would this be chaos, but driving would be impossible. Like, that would violate the conditions for the possibility of driving as such. Mm -hmm. And yet, I don't have certainty in any of this, right? I don't have certainty that that driver is going to stay in their lane. And so that's why I say that there's a kind of moral extension here. In other words... The very world of acting, and I would extend that to say even the very world of being together, requires this moral extension where our knowledge has limits. So I act as if I'm sure in the face of clear unsuredness or uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I think what makes the trust in this case separate from belief and the way in which it's like this epistemic but also moral or ethical concept is because beliefs can be confirmed or disproven. Trust always has to be extended and there's never a definitive. I mean, like 
to use even your driving example, every once in a while, someone's going to do something absolutely crazy, right? or they're incapacitated, or something has gone horribly wrong, and you will see the way in which the trust is in some sense misplaced. But the point beyond that is to restore your trust. It doesn't disprove in the way that something that's believed can be proven true or false. Trust always has to be made and unmade in specific relations and in specific situations. But it's interesting in those cases where something goes horribly wrong, we have a word for that, and that word is accident. Mm. I agree with Aristotle that when we're trying to make our way in the world and figure things out, we don't look to the accidental. We look to what happens always or most of the time. That's what we do when we're driving. I once got in an accident where someone slammed into me from behind when I was at a stoplight. For months, maybe even years after that, every time I was stopped at a stoplight, I was looking in my rearview mirror at the cars coming behind me, afraid that they weren't going to stop, and it almost paralyzed me. Mm. Like, it almost made me unable to drive. That's because I was looking at driving on the basis of the accidental and not what happens either always or most of the time. And just to get back to your opening question, this is why I think the locutionary or the illocutionary or the perlocutionary aspect of trust is not the most important part. You know, whether I say it or whether saying it does anything or whether saying it establishes some behavioral disposition in you doesn't ultimately matter, right? I mean, there are very few instances in which saying I trust you matter. But then doesn't that open the question of why we go on saying it? (laughs) What's the purpose of saying I trust you or I trust that you'll keep this a secret or this person is trustworthy or not trustworthy? Well, those are three different things. Okay. The first one, I trust you, is making a statement about my own disposition towards our relationship, my own attitudinal beliefs about you and about the situation. The second one, I trust you will keep this a secret, is saying something about something that I hope that you will do, right? And the third one, someone is trustworthy or untrustworthy, is a character judgment. It's an assessment of a pattern of behaviors. Those are three different things. And I don't know that the saying of any of those things are important operative elements in the phenomenon of trust. Yeah, but what I'm trying to say is then that makes the statement a phenomenon separate from the phenomenon of trust. And then I'm wondering what's going on in the phenomenon of the statement. Mm. So I think that when I say, I trust you will keep this a secret, Maybe sometimes I mean I will hope, but it seems to me that trust is somewhat stronger than hope. When I say I hope it will be sunny tomorrow, I don't know whether it will or not. But when I say I trust you'll keep this a secret, it seems to me like I'm saying not that you're keeping the secret or not keeping the secret are equally possible, but I'm hoping that one of them turns out. It seems like I'm saying... Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Well... Don't tell anyone. And what I'm telling you is that I have this relationship to you that I'm calling trust, that if you violate, then you're dead to me. Oh, welcome to my backyard of buried (laughs) hatchets. (laughs) That escalated quickly. (laughs) You know what would suck right now? A commercial. 
Just imagine the witty and entertaining philosophical banter being interrupted with an ad for MailChimp. That sucks. Well, you can help us keep ad-free and free by supporting us with a donation. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotelbarsessions. And there you can sign up to make a monthly donation at several different levels. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or make sporadic gifts when you're able, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com and there you'll find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. Cheers. If I could just return to the driving example, because Rick said if it were the case that I didn't trust that other drivers were going to drive mindfully, right, or at least not murderously, I wouldn't be able to drive. Yeah. I would just be terrified to drive all the time. I think that really does accurately encapsulate what happens when trust is broken. And I do actually think that we have a lot of situations like that that we're living in right now. Unfortunately, in the United States, a lot of us cannot presume that if we go to the grocery store or if we go to church or if we go to a concert that we won't be shot. Right. You know, even us in a yeah. classroom, we can't trust in my own safety and the safety of those around me. And to the extent that that behavior, that behavior of not trusting my environment and not trusting other people becomes more sedimented in my attitudinal disposition towards the world – literally the less I can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's impossible to go about acting in the world, especially in a world where there are other humans, if, in a sense, to put it maybe too flatly, I can't have any surety that people are going to follow the rules. This makes living itself quite debilitating. And I can give an example that's currently going on in Chicago. Maybe you all have heard, because the right wing won't stop talking about it, but there's some crime going on in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's not funny. It's certainly not funny. But also, by the way, the crime rate currently is not nearly as high as it was in the late 80s and 90s. Mm. But people don't remember that, and so now they think like this is unprecedented. And I have a number of people in my life for whom hearing about these crimes going on has actually broken their trust in society. And for some of them, it comes quite close to being debilitating. Mm -hmm. They are changing their behaviors drastically. They're not going places they would otherwise have gone. They're sometimes going out less than they would have. When they tell me, oh, have you read that article about this and that? I'm like, no, I can't. And when I'm asked why, my answer is because I'm not going to be a different human being just because of this. If someone's going to commit a crime against me, it's going to happen. I can't do anything about it. I could be alert. I could be practical about it, but I'm not going to change my life. In other words, my trust is not entirely broken. I'm suspicious, but my trust in society is not fundamentally fractured. Yeah, I mean, deteriorating someone's ability to trust in the people around them is one of the most tragic and effective ways to like, actually break a person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that we see this in abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, we see this in people who have been betrayed. You know, I'm going to be totally honest. This happened to me in the last year. I had a series of really hurtful and harmful betrayals of trust. 
And that becomes a attitudinal disposition then towards everyone, right. even people who I know I can trust, because you think, well, I thought I could trust these people and they broke it. And so who can I trust? Right. Like, no one, mm -hmm. no one. And that is a destruction of what it means to be a moral and social agent. Yeah. We might want to go into more detail later, but I also think one of the effects of Trump and Trumpism is to break fundamental trust for all of us. Right. So that we no longer have any ground for any kind of cohesion, let alone solidarity. Yeah, I think this was part of our conversation when we were discussing the film, The Conversation, mm. in an earlier episode. Mm. You know, we were really looking at what I just described on an individual level as happening on a social level, right? And many people have said this about the post-Watergate America, right? It was like an America that doesn't trust anyone or anything. Right. So I trust someone, they break my trust. Is it always the case that we could retroactively say that my trust was misplaced? Because I don't think that is the case. Mm -hmm. I want to hold out the possibility that I had good reasons for placing my trust there. My trust was broken. And the reason why I want to hold out that possibility is because if you tell me I misplaced my trust in that person, you're blaming me for what is their moral failure. And I want to say, no, it's not my moral failure. It's theirs. Right. And what is more unmooring than not being able to trust yourself? Yeah, that's right. So if my trust was misplaced, now I don't trust myself to place trust. Then I'm in the situation that you described, Lee, where I can't trust anyone but this also broadens out into, I don't even trust my own knowledge of, you know, what the world is. Right. It becomes, as philosophers might say, metaphysical. I mistrust reality. But I think the term misplaced trust suggests that there are things one should look for. Like, there's a distinction, I think, being made between misplaced trust and broken trust. Mm. Misplaced trust is like, you should have seen these signs, right? Mm. And of course, maybe that is a little bit of blaming the victim or whatever, but there are situations where you know, maybe you should have seen these signs. And then there are situations where everything indicated you're doing the right thing. Everything indicated that this person was what they were pretending to be. And then suddenly it's like snap and oh my God. I mean, for me, I feel like at least can point to experiencing two very different phenomena. There are points where I'm like, oh yeah, I should have seen this coming. What was I doing? <laughs> and there are points where like, oh my God, where the hell did that come from? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's a second one that is much more unnerving because the first one I can be like, yeah, I kind of made some mistakes there. But the second one, the broken trust is like, I don't even know what's real anymore. But let me ask you this, Jason. I think all of us would agree that not being trustworthy is a moral failure. Mm -hmm. But can it ever be a failure to trust someone? I mean, it could be a mistake mm -hmm. for sure, but can it be a moral failure? Mm. What I like about that question, Lee, is it reminds me that con people, the name comes from confidence. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. All con games work on the fact that we trust. They manipulate that natural inclination of all of us to trust one another. As you said, Lee, we don't live in a world where everyone lies. 95% of the time, everything's above board and on the up and up. The con relies on that extension of trust. 
And I don't think that if I trust the person behind the con game, that that's a moral failure on my part. And I think at least being open to trust is itself, to use an old-fashioned word taken from Aristotle, something like a virtue. I completely agree. And the fact that we operate, again, 95% of the time— as if other people are trustworthy, trust is placed in ways that are reliable, that people are telling the truth, whatever, whatever, is evidenced in our experience by the fact that when we mistrust, the phenomenal experience of mistrusting someone or something or some situation is something's wrong here. Yeah, Trusting is not moral or immoral. It's just a reasonable way to exist in the world. Right. And when we look on the world reasonably, the world looks reasonably back, <laughs> you know, as Hegel said. But when we look on the world rationally and the world looks irrationally back, we experience it as something is wrong right. here. I ought not trust it. But the ought there I don't think is a moral ought. To whatever extent there's a moral wrong here, it's on the side of the untrustworthy person, event, or situation. I agree. This brings me back to the point Jason was making, that broken trust is a moral failure on the part of the one who breaks my trust in them, whereas misplaced trust is a failure in my knowledge. As Jason kept saying, I should have known better. Mm -hmm. So I don't think when I misplace trust that that's a moral failure. It's, you know, to use the philosophical term, it's an epistemic failure. Okay, but if I could just push back again, because I think there are instances in which breaking trust is a morally correct thing to do. You know, whistleblowers, mm. for example. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if I have two friends who are dating one another and one of them is unfaithful or abusive or whatever, and I tell the other one, I mean, that seems to me clearly breaking trust and knowingly, cognizantly breaking a trust, but for moral reasons. For moral reasons or prudential reasons? Hmm, that's a good question. I would say both. And here's how I'll explain it. And this is going to be a little bit of a, you know, <laughs> a moral con game here, <laughs> but, like, but like a little bit because the person who said, I trust you, won't tell anyone about this is not trustworthy. And for Dave, could we just describe the difference between an issue of morality and an issue of prudence? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to go in the Kantian direction. So for Kant, an issue of morality, as Lee said, is an issue of ought. This ought to be done. Whereas an issue of prudence is usually related to something you're attempting to achieve, and this action is good in order to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and not to get too deep in the weeds about this, but there are, of course, moral theories like utilitarianism in which prudential and moral are more or less conflated, right? Exactly. So the moral thing to do is whatever is going to produce the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people or the least amount of suffering for the greatest amount of people, in which case the prudential thing to do will always be the moral thing to That's do. That's right. Mm -hmm. But for Kant, this isn't the case because for reasons we don't have to go into right now, every prudential decision has to be based on my knowing the specific context that's relevant to my action. And for Kant, what is moral 
has to be independent of any specific context in which I'm contemplating what to do or what not to do. Moral judgments have to be pure, whereas prudential judgments are always down here in our mucky world where people have bodies and they're sweaty and they're rubbing up against one another. <laughs> On the dance floor. <laughs> What? I didn't read that in my intro to philosophy. <laughs> oh, it's right there in the groundwork, <laughs> chapter 29. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for my part, I do think it's much harder to unpack the moral significance of trust in a utilitarian yeah. framework or a prudential framework than it is in a deontological framework or a ought duty-based right. framework. No, I think that's the case. That in itself might be a reason why we ought to be suspicious of utilitarian ethics or any kind of prudential-based ethics. Because as we've been arguing, trust seems fundamental to our living together and living well together, and therefore has to be a fundamental moral issue. And if your morality can't account for it or have a place for it, then I don't think you have a moral theory. I mean, I think that's maybe a little bit stronger than what I would say, but I would agree with you that what broken trust is to a utilitarian is a misjudgment. It's a miscalculation. Right. And I still want to hold out for the fact that it's a moral failure on the part of the one who broke the trust. And it's not a miscalculation. Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance... You can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. So, I mean, the word trust is used in a lot of different senses, right? And I do think that to be Aristotelian about it, we have to make sure we're not just dealing with homonyms here and we're dealing with different meanings of the same fundamental relation. But people do talk, as we've sort of mentioned already, about, you know, a breakdown in trust, not in individuals, but a breakdown in trust in institutions like trust of the media is at an all-time low, trust of government, etc., I guess the first question is, are we talking about the same thing when we talk about trust in institutions, or is it kind of a homonym, or how is it similar or different? Being raised in Chicago, which I don't know if you've heard, but there has been a history of corruption in our politics here from time to time. <laughs> and crime. <laughs> um, you say corruption, I say Tuesday. <laughs> And it was not uncommon for people to say all politicians are on the take and they're all corrupt and maybe even that they're all liars. But even in that, there was still a kind of fundamental trust 
that while they're taken a bit on the side, they're still concerned that the L runs and the parks mm-hmm. are open and clean and social services are running and you could still get a tax sticker for your car. And and so there was a fundamental trust in the institution, even while people would say, you know, you can't trust any of them individually. Mm-hmm. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that we really can talk about trust in institutions without personifying the institution. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why a lot of times when people talk about mistrusting government or mistrusting the media, like they literally have in their minds fat dudes smoking <laughs> cigars in a back room, right. you know, like making a decision to lie to you. <laughs> and of course, that's not how it actually happened. But when we talk about things like a trust in the rule of law, yeah, or even even more abstractly, like a trust that the sun will rise tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's a slightly different thing. It's not as if I personify nature when I say I trust that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, or I personify the judicial branch of the government when I say I trust in the rule of law. That's more of a moral commitment and less of a judgment about trustworthiness or untrustworthiness, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced. Okay. Or maybe I am, but I just heard today Dahlia Lithwick, who is the host of the Slate podcast Amicus Brief, which is about the Supreme Court and the judiciary in general. She was on one of my other favorite podcasts, Nobody <laughs> Listens to Paula Poundstone. <laughs> and at one point, Paula Poundstone said, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but what is stare decisis? Dahlia was so cool about this, but one of the things she ended up saying was, if it turns out that Supreme Court judgments are just based on who the personnel of the court happened to be at a certain time, citizens can no longer trust the rule of law. I think she did really mean trust as a sort of moral issue. And I think what she was saying is the institution has broken our trust. She, in a very moving moment, said, it breaks my heart to say this because I have loved this institution for 20 years. I've defended it and supported it. And they have broken my trust and they have broken our trust in the rule of law. You know, that's really interesting that you bring up stare decisis, because for listeners, stare decisis is a legal principle that basically states that courts will decide litigation on the basis of precedent. Okay. Mm. And in some ways, that's the same reason that I believe that the sun will rise tomorrow, (laughs) right? It's because it rose yesterday and it rose the day before and it rose the day before. Mm -hmm. Okay. So two things. In that sense, one, I'm not sure that that's the same kind of trust that we've been talking about in this episode, partly because two, it seems to be a prudential decision, right? Like to trust in precedent is a utilitarian calculation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's trust as a kind of predictability. Right, yeah. There's a great line in the film Jackie Brown where someone's asking Samuel Jackson's character if he trusts this woman, and he says, you can't trust Melanie, but you can trust Melanie to be Melanie. Mm. (laughs) Right? In the sense that like... Oh, I know Melanie. (laughs) (laughs) It's not totally related to Star Decisis, but the way in which if I think of my trust of a corporation, I don't trust them. 
but I trust that they're going to do certain predictable things that they're not interested in yeah. exposing themselves to lawsuits or things that are excessively risky. Like I can put a trust that's not based on a moral idea. I think they're trying to make as much money and do whatever they have to do to make that money. But I understand that there's constraints and limitations. So I trust them to do what they're going to do within those limitations. And I feel like that's trust as a judgment of predictability, not a moral judgment of worthiness. It's completely greasy. That's an epistemic judgment. Like we can all trust Elon to be Elon because <laughs> of things that have nothing to do with his status as a moral agent. That's a hard one though. Elon, I mean, <laughs> pretty out there things. I mean. <laughs> right. Like, let me just pick the most unpredictable person like that exists and use him as an example. Yeah. Well, so now I've been thrown into confusion because I'm now wondering if there is any moral sense of trust or whether it's, in fact, not all prudential. What all of these uses of the word and the concept trust have in common is that my trust is the basis on which I act in certain ways and I don't act in other ways in a situation in which my knowledge is limited and therefore I can't have certainty. But if I waited for knowledge or certainty, then I wouldn't act at all. And so trust is an extension beyond the limits of knowledge in order to enable me to act or to not act in certain ways because otherwise I would be stymied. And that seems to be the same in relation to the sun rising tomorrow, and it seems to be the same when I trust in the rule of law. But I don't know if that's also not the same when I say that I trust you or make the judgment that you are trustworthy. This may be an oversimplification, but I would say that the moral dimension of trust is the presumption that when trust is extended, it ought not be broken, and when it is broken, it ought to be mended. That's the moral dimension of trust. That can't always exist between the truster and the trustee. For example, between me and corporations. We just have a different mm -hmm. relationship in which those oughts don't apply or between me and nature. You know, I don't think that nature is a moral <laughs> agent. So for those reasons, it doesn't apply. But to the extent that the players in the trust game both understand that trust ought not to be broken and when it's broken, it ought to be mended, it does have a moral dimension, I think, mm -hmm. a primarily moral dimension. I would say that that would hold when the Supreme Court breaks our trust in the rule of law, but not in relation to corporations. And as I say that, I can't really pick out how I could make that distinction. Well, the Supreme Court is actually, you know, nine human beings smoking cigars in a room. It's like, we know who they are, you know. Somehow I, I'm picturing Sonia Sotomayor, like with a big stogie. Um, or Elena Kagan. Wagging her finger. <laughs> yeah, or RBG. No, I agree. And this is where Dahlia Lithwick was going. The institution is these nine individuals, but it's not reducible to these nine individuals. And that's where I might disagree with you, because I think that used to be the case. It used to be the case that we could think about the office of the president, the office right. of SCOTUS, the office of a senator as independent of the individual who occupied that office. Yeah. But now I don't think that that's the case. And this is maybe hearkening back to 
I don't even remember what episode we were talking about this in when we were talking about bureaucracy is that, you know, one of the advantages, one of the good things about bureaucracy is that it's supposed to maintain the integrity of offices independent of who occupies those offices. Mm -hmm. And now I think that we've just gotten to the point in American politics where parties aren't parties, offices aren't offices, institutions aren't institutions. They are very specific personalities who we can point to with very particular aims and desires and agendas that we can point to and that we can assign trustworthiness or untrustworthiness. I don't know what the opposite of trustworthiness is. Distrust to those people. I'm reminded, Lee, that the Latin word officium, one of the ways that this is sometimes translated is as duty. Mm. You could see the relationship between office and duty. What's the difference between the office of the president and the person who happens to be president? It's that the office of the president is, we might say, a role. Mm -hmm. But what do we mean when we say that it's a role? We mean something like the person holding it has to do certain things and not do other things. That is, the role means that there are duties that come along with it. The moment then in which the person breaks out of the office is a moment when we're out of morality altogether because there are no more duties. Mm. First of all, I wonder if what Lee was saying about like everything's broken down to the person. I wonder if that's the actual state of affairs or it's the representation of the state mm. of affairs. Because I do feel like part of the distrust of institutions is treating institutions as if they require moral trust when really the trust in institution is more like the epistemic trust. You understand how they function, Yeah. right? Do I trust the media, news organizations? Like, I know that they're riveted with all sorts of, you know, as Mark said, the ideas of the ruling class and so on. But I also know that there are certain constraints built in. And I feel like if I read enough and read carefully enough, I can get a sense of what's going on in the world. But I don't trust them in the sense that I think that they're well-intentioned. I trust them because I realize that there's a whole set of constraints, like media organizations don't want to get sued for saying blatantly libelous things and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's a predictability there that's the basis of my trust, not a moral nature of that trust. And I feel like a lot of the distrust you hear is as if it's an entirely moral relationship, like they're lying. I feel like lying doesn't really cover what's happening in media representations. It's ideology, it's distortion, it's interests, it's biases, etc. Lying plays a tiny, tiny role right. in the whole system. But lying is the moral representation of the distortions that are better understood as the way the system is set up to function right now. I agree with you. I also think, though, that with just the institutions that you mentioned, the media, Congress, the Supreme Court, I think there's a kind of three-card Monty going on with the limits of the institution and the rules of the institution. And part of the reason why it becomes less and less prudential to trust the media, to trust Congress, is because that trust is based on an understanding, as you said, of the predictability and the regularity of the institution operating by rules that define it as an institution. But when what the people in that institution are doing are changing the rules, you know, mm -hmm. then it does become about the people and not about the institution anymore. 
when Mitch McConnell says we are literally not even going to interview a Supreme Court nominee for a vacant seat until Mm -hmm. we have power to confirm the nominee that we want. That's about Mitch McConnell. And I think to say that it's about the individual, as I understand your argument, Lee, that's a structural claim. In other words, we used to, perhaps wrongly, trust that these offices would constrain the acts of the individual. Correct. And we're now in a situation in which the individual has broken out of those constraints. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean if Mitch McConnell were a better human being, all these problems would be solved, right? That would be looking at the individual qua individual. Lee, I took your point as this is now a structural phenomena in which individuals have broken out of their offices, that is the roles they used to have in the Supreme Court, in the Senate, in the presidency, in the media, and I think with Elon also in corporations. I think it's that breaking out, the individual having broken out of the role or the office, that is the origin of our saying, we no longer trust the media, we no longer trust the Supreme Court, and so on. Yeah, and I think it's that destructive activity of the individuals that has made those offices untrustworthy. Right. Because what they've done is they've broken the structure of those offices. They are no longer predictable. They are no longer reliable. You know, every day I go out to my car and I assume that I can get in it and I can drive it to work. But if tomorrow I go out and sitting on my curb is a vehicle with not wheels, but fish tanks, you know, (laughs) I can't trust that it's going to get me to work. Like I don't trust the automobile anymore. I'm reluctant to attribute all this to individuals. I mean, I think what we're seeing is in some sense, the redefinition of some of these institutions, like the Republican Party, for example, I would say is preparing itself for a kind of minority rule. It recognizes that it cannot get broad-based appeal for a lot of what it's doing, but given the structure of how the Senate works and Supreme Court, it can set up a system by which it continues with 30% of the population for whom Mitch McConnell says we're not going to entertain any Supreme Court justices. They're like, hell yeah, you know. (laughs) Power grab. And they don't see this in terms of a system based on a kind of reciprocity of rule. They see it as a zero-sum game. And you can say the same thing about the media, which changed its models to pursuing clickbait and not building up long entrenched trust for like this newspaper, this institution. And I think that part of what's happening is a redefining of what these institutions are supposed to do. I just don't want to give that much importance to individuals as individuals in this system. But this was the distinction I was trying to make. There's a difference between an individual and the individual. Right. So even within, let's say, a capitalist organization, one capitalist is just as capitalist as any other capitalist, but it needs a capitalist, right? And so Mm -hmm. there is a role for the individual, and it's almost irrelevant who that individual is. And what I heard Lee saying was, in Mitch McConnell saying, we are not going to even have a hearing for a Supreme Court nominee, That's a sign that the individual, that it's Mitch McConnell is irrelevant, but the individual has broken out of the office. Yeah, I agree with that.
think there's one lingering question that we've touched on but haven't really got into, and that is how does one rebuild trust? And I guess I'm more interested in this question at the institutional level right now than I am at the individual. So should we rebuild trust in our institutions or should we think about how to proceed maybe without trust, I guess, is the question that I have. What we have now begun to see is the reality that was always there. It's just that we either pretended that it wasn't there or we ignored that it was there. And we finally have to reckon with the fact that our founding document is anti-democratic, doesn't have democracy at its heart, that the Constitution really is about the interests of a small group of people, namely white men with property. We won't be able to trust in institutions until we come to terms with that fact. In the meanwhile, I think we have to start figuring out in relation to institutions how we operate in a world where trust isn't operating and cannot operate. Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of sad answer, Rick, in my view. Like, I guess we're just going to have to <laughs> learn how to work in a world where trust doesn't operate. Here's what I would say. To explain how broken trust with institutions is mended is easier than to explain how broken trust with other individuals is mended. Mm. But there are some similarities. So mending broken trust with institutions is going to be primarily a legislative endeavor, policy-oriented endeavor. We're going to have to change the rules or fix the rules where they've been broken. So I don't think with institutions that mending broken trust is about individuals demonstrating their trustworthiness back again to you. Mm -hmm. I do think that with other individuals, it is about them demonstrating their trustworthiness back to you. So with both institutions and individuals, if I could, again, harken back to my, I guess, I'm now realizing somewhat controversial <laughs> claim in our forgiveness episode <laughs> that we've got to approach both institutions that we don't trust and individuals that we don't trust with the hatchet buried, but with the handle left out of the ground, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, I need to understand that you have broken my trust in the past, that there's a possibility that you will break my trust again. But leave open the possibility that you'll reestablish that trust or you'll act in a trustworthy way again. Now, if you don't, I've got the handle sticking out of the ground. I've got receipts, right? And I can say, now you're not somebody that I'm going to extend trust to again. In the meantime, let's work on it. I'm not sure that the trust can be mended, but if it's going to be mended, it can only be mended institutionally through real structural change and individually through your action. I find that to be sadder than what I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, we started with Jason's super sad rant, and I feel like we're just getting sadder and sadder as this goes along. But Jason, going back to the godfather of sadness, what do you think? Godfather of sadness? Oh, <laughs> I do not like – I trusted you to come up with a better nickname than that. The Sultan of Sadness. <laughs> Sultan. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm more interested in the question of like how do we build, as we are talking about earlier, the sort of trust that is like fundamental to sociality yeah. than mm. the trust in given institutions. Like I sort of agree with what Rick was saying earlier. Like 
I don't think there's any way the Supreme Court, as it exists, can be restored in terms of its trust. And I'm not really interested in doing that, but I am interested in human beings' ability to trust in each other because that is the degree zero of any politics at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that yeah. if it means sort of dispensing with the existing institutions as they exist, maybe that's necessary. But there are certain institutions I feel like I'm not interested in the, in the energy and work to salvage them. Mm-hmm. And I'm more interested in coming to understand that they were untrustworthy to begin with. and They were designed that way. Mm-hmm. You're the sultan of sadness. <laughs> no, but there's a hope in there, you know. <laughs> I trust people. It's a faint, faint glimmer, but there, <laughs> there is hope in there. So we trust you, the listener. We'll be back next time to listen to us. And you hope you trust us to put out a new episode next week as well. So with that, I guess we're willing to say in podcasting, we trust <laughs> and move on. <laughs> and the bartender trusts that we're going to get the hell out of here. <laughs> then we're going to yeah. pay our bill. <laughs> I'm gonna go